Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Uh, good morning quite a few of you watching online. Um, I know the weather in some of the county has been a little, little dicey. Um, frankly, I could have driven here on a moped with bald tires from Wheelersburg, but okay. Um, this morning, a couple things before we get going. First of all is this. If you're in, typically in the upper room, the youth group, this morning you're going to the chapel. You're going back. You're going to meet Andrew and Rachel back in the chapel. That's where you're going. Galaxy can go ahead and be dismissed as well. So you guys can go ahead. A um, couple other announcements real quick. First of all, be sure, please, um, if you're here to pick up a bulletin, if you're watching online, uh, to try to get a hold of a bulletin. I'll try to remind Chris to put it online or Paula to put it online and be praying for our folks. I know that in this pandemic we have a tendency to kind of hunker down and be on our own and think that only COVID is what we have to worry about, but we've got folks battling cancer and, and all kinds of other things and, and people with family that's battling cancer. And so please, please be in prayer and keep doing that. We're family. We need to take care of each other, and that starts by at least, the very least, praying for each other. Number three, as you saw, we have the Storm Bratchett Blood Drive, uh, 12th annual Storm Bratchett Memorial Blood Drive coming up. If you've been following the news, you know there is a great need for blood. And so you can register now online, and the online thing is there in the bulletin. It's also should be on our website, and you can go on there and register. If you want to register the old-fashioned way and just sign on the dotted line, those sheets will be out next week. We do not need volunteers this year for registration or snacks or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, the family's going to take care of that. Lynn and her kids, they're, they're going to take care of all of that, and, but we just need donors. And so if you can, show up, schedule it, show up, give some blood. The um, Hawksworth's going to do what they can to make sure it's as safe as possible, social distance, all that kind of stuff. The last thing is this, what we hope Another thing to be putting on your prayer list, we hope, it's our goal, it's not for sure, but our goal, hopefully what we're praying about as a staff and what I hope that all of us will be praying about as a church, is that come April, which is the first weekend, uh, come Easter, first weekend in April, we'll have all of our children's ministries back open. That's what we hope. So be praying for that. All right, we are in Acts 17, Acts 17. 17. And we're going to go through the entire chapter and why you flip there on your device or in your Bible. Uh, some of you, it's been really cool. I've had a number of messages from, from people uh, who haven't been going to church, who've been checking us out online and, 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 and so forth, and, and have said they'll start coming to church when this whole thing's over. And also people who do come to church asking, I love this, but we're, what are we going to do after Acts? And they want to go ahead and read ahead, which is cool. We will do Acts until the last, next to last weekend in March. Last weekend in March, we will do, I guess you call it, because we have Saturday and Sunday services, Palm Weekend, I guess, instead of Palm Sunday. Um, and then we'll have Easter Sermon. And then after that, for four weeks, we'll be in the book of Jonah. Because I like to go Old Testament, New Testament, we'll be in the book of Jonah. Where will we go after Jonah? I have no idea because we're waiting to hear uh, back from some folks as you know, it's sad and it's wonderful at the same time. Eddie and Patrick will be graduating with their master's degree, and they'll be heading back to Uganda probably in the first week in July. And so in June, we want to have a big to-do for them to celebrate, and we also want to give them a couple Sundays to preach, but we're waiting to hear about when some people can be here. And so that's kind of up in the air, and we'll let you know as that comes along. All right, Acts 17. I'm going to talk about idols this morning, I-D-O-L, idols. Now, when I'm, when I'm going to talk about idols, here's what you need to understand. I'm not talking about American Idol. I'm certainly not talking about Billy Idol. I'm talking about when the Bible talks about idols, it talks about false gods. And not just the little statues that you worship, not just going to a mosque 
or going to a Mormon temple or whatever. I'm talking about anything, anything that you love more than Jesus Christ. Idols are still a big deal. Traditional idols, the things you worship, literally bow down and worship and pray to, little figures or pictures or whatever, still a big deal all over the world in different parts of the world, especially in the Middle East and, and in parts of Europe um, and, and India. There's an old Middle Eastern parable. It's not in the Bible. It's about a person in the Bible, but it's not in the Bible. It's a Middle Eastern parable about Abraham when he was a younger man. Abraham, as you know, came from a place called Ur. And the story goes that Abraham's father, Terah, T-E-R-A-H, was an idol maker. That he made household gods for money. That's how he made his dough. And one day, Abraham was left in charge of the store. Terah had to go out of town on a business trip. He wasn't very happy about it because he knew Abraham did not approve of idols. Abraham worshipped the one true God. But he had no choice. So he told Abraham, be sure to take care of things, I'll be back. Abraham said, sure enough. Abraham, as soon as he was out of sight, grabbed a big stick and destroyed every single idol save one, the biggest one. And then he took that stick and he put it in the big idol's hands and waited for dad to come back. And so dad comes back, and Tara walks in and sees his merchandise scattered into a thousand pieces all over the floor. And he says, what happened? Abraham said, oh, father, it was terrible. The little idols got hungry, and they started fighting with each other for food, yelling at each other. And the big idol got really angry, had enough of it. He was trying to sleep, so he grabbed hold of the big stick, and he smashed all the smaller idols. Abraham's father said, don't give me a break. Idols don't get angry. They don't speak. They don't get hungry. They're just idols. Abraham leaned forward and said, then why do you worship them? So goes the fable. Acts 17, verse 1. So after Paul and Silas had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. And many of you know, we've heard that before. It's the place where Paul would write two letters called the first and second letter to the Thessalonians. That's in Thessalonica. Where there was a synagogue of the Jews, synagogue being a church of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, that's three Saturdays in a row, and argued with them from the Scriptures. He opened the Scriptures, went through it, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this is the Messiah, Jesus, who I am proclaiming to you. So Paul, once again, as is his custom, he goes to the Old Testament. There is no New Testament yet. So when he says scriptures, he's thinking Genesis to Malachi. And he goes through it and shows them how it all points to Jesus Christ and how Jesus Christ prophesied thousands of years before would come and live and die and rise again. Verse 4, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, those are non-Jews, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jewish leaders became jealous, and with the help of some thugs in the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And while they were searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly, they attacked Jason's house. This Jason is, is somebody who was probably a Greek, who was, became friends with Paul, was open to his message, and invited him into his house. It's that Jason, not the guy with the hockey mask. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the believers before the city authorities, shouting, these people have been turning the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying that there is another king named Jesus. Now, that accusation is actually correct. They were saying there was a king named Jesus. But at this time, the emperor, Caesar, who ruled Rome, didn't care. There were a line of emperors 
who really didn't care that a small band of people called Christians, actually at first they called themselves the way, worshipped a guy named Jesus and called him king. Caesar didn't care, not now. Now later there would be two Caesars come along, a Caesar by the name of Vespasian and another Caesar named Domitian. They would care. And then you get a little book called the book of Revelation. Verse 8, the people and the city officials were disturbed when they heard this. And after they had taken Baal from Jason and the others, they let them go. Well, that very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. You see a pattern here. This is where Paul always goes. He goes to the Jewish church first. He always brings the message of salvation to his fellow Jews first. These Jews were more receptive than those in Thessalonica. For they welcomed the message very eagerly and examined the scriptures every day to see whether these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, including not a few Greek women and men of high standing. But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea as well, they came there too to stir up and incite the crowds. Now, this is some serious jealousy. It's not just the message they object to, that Jesus is the Messiah. It's the fact that when... Paul preaches Jesus is the Messiah. So many people followed him instead of them. It's pure jealousy. And jealousy can become an idol. They would have walked or ridden a donkey 45 miles to go stir up trouble for Paul. Now that doesn't sound like a lot to us, 45 miles. But on a donkey, uh, in my younger days... Uh, my friends in school and I used to ride the Tosserve. That's where you take a bike and you ride from Columbus to Portsmouth. The very first year I did that, I did not know that you needed a special seat and special pants. My butt burned for three days. I can't imagine what being on a donkey for two and a half days would be like but that's how long it would have taken them to get there. So then the believers immediately sent Paul away to the coast, but Silas and Timothy remained behind. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions to have Silas and Timothy join him, as soon as possible, they left him. Now, Paul is getting ready to go to Athens, not where there is OU, not this Athens. This Athens is named after this Athens in the Bible. This is Athens in Greece. Now, in ancient Greece, the city of Athens was very well known. It's considered one of, it was the intellectual center of the Greek empire. It was one of the three intellectual centers of the Roman empire, along with Tarsus and Alexandria. And Paul is going to go preach to these folks. Now, I want to set this up for you. Picture this. Paul going to Athens in the first century to preach Jesus Christ is a little like me going into the philosophy or science department at UC Berkeley to preach Jesus Christ today. Now, if you don't know anything about the philosophy or science department at UC Berkeley, they're almost all atheists, every single one of them. So keep that in mind. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, I am reading this morning from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, which is a fine translation. I did not have time to translate my own translation this week. I've been busy with school. But here's what I do know. It says there in verse 16, when Paul sees all these idols in the city, he was, quote, deeply distressed. Okay. I'm sick and tired of talking about this, but I'll mention it one more time. When the catastrophe happened at the Capitol building a while back, and one of the guys who rushed in who was reading, who was wearing the helmet with the horns, you know, the guy who looked like, you know, something from the Flintstones or whatever, that guy, and he was yelling and screaming, shirtless, In 40-degree weather, 
and storming the Senate and the House chambers and all the other kind of stuff. And he was described by some media outlets as somewhat disturbed. Somewhat disturbed? That guy is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. When the NRSV says Paul was deeply distressed, that's the understatement of the year. In Greek, I'll watch my language here, he was ticked off. He was angry. He was not deeply distressed. He was red-faced, fist-clenched, angry. Why? Because Paul knows that every single one of those idols was built by a human created by God, and now they're worshiping the creation instead of the creator, and it made him angry. How many idols do we find in our world, and Christians like me just pass it by without giving it a second thought? Paul was angry. Verse 17, so he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a proclaimer of of foreign divinities. And so, because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection, which they didn't understand. So they took him and brought him to the Arabopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Academia has not changed in 2,000 years. Um, I have a pet peeve with the educational system in our country. I'm going to sound like an old fart, and I am becoming one quickly. There was a time when, in our specialty universities, we taught logic and critical thinking, to think independently and logically. We studied the classics. Today, in most academia, it is regurgitate what the professor is telling you. And by the way, he changes his mind every six months. Sorry, it's a gripe. 22. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found them among an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God. Now, you're really into idols. If you're making idol after idol after idol after idol, and they're like, have we covered all our bases? We better make one to an unknown God. There may be one out there we haven't thought of yet. Okay, done. And they did it. But Paul uses this to launch into a sermon. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it. He who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. You need to underline that verse, by the way. Since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live. Now, notice this in verse 27. So they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. Now, Paul alludes to this again in Romans 1 and 2. Here's what Paul expects, because I hear this all the time. Here's one of the biggest objections I hear to Christianity. Matt, what about those who have never heard the gospel? Well, I am all for seeking out people to preach the gospel, especially as I told you a few weeks ago, those 3.14 billion people in the world who have never heard about Jesus Christ, not in the correct way anyway. But what Paul assumes is this, that any human being who wakes up and sees the sunrise... And the rains come regularly, and the earth give us food, and the sun go down and come back up. The miracle of birth 
the incredible intricacy of design of the universe. Paul expects every human being to go, look at that, this can't be an accident, there must be a creator, and I must find him. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets said, for we too are his offspring, and since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like God, like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. Now look, while God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now, this is 2,000 years ago, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Turn from your sinful, selfish ways, turn to God. That's what that means. Because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness or rightness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, Jesus is the final judge. Jesus decides who goes to heaven, who goes to hell. That's up to Jesus. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, well, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them, but some of them joined him and became believers including Dionysius, the Arabogite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Now, I have seen and heard some writers and preachers say that when Paul preaches, and this is called Mars Hill in Athens, when he preaches on Mars Hill, his sermon is a failure because only a few people respond. But remember how I set this up for you. If I walked into the halls of UC Berkeley or Columbia University, or Harvard, or Yale, and I preached Jesus Christ, and even just two people came to faith, I'd call that a success, wouldn't you? And Luke names these two people. And again, why does Luke name people, some people we never meet again? Because when he was writing this, what's he doing? He says in the beginning, I have interviewed eyewitnesses. What's he doing? Identifying the eyewitnesses. He's saying, you want to check my facts? Go talk to these folks. There it is. Paul encounters the idolatry of the Jewish leaders who are jealous of his success. And as I preached over the last few weeks, ministry itself can become an idol. It can. And then he goes to Athens and he encounters idols made of stone and, and porcelain and all the other kind of rock and so forth. And he sees them everywhere and he gets angry and he preaches. And what he is saying is only one one entity in the entire universe deserves your worship and praise. It is the one true God revealed by Jesus Christ. That is it. Nothing else. But as I said, an idol can be anything, even a good thing. And idols are not just in foreign countries, they are here as well. Um, the first school that I attended in, when I lived in Los Angeles was a private school in Pasadena. And there were a lot of foreign exchange students there. I only stayed there for a semester. They politely asked me to leave after a semester. I think what they did was unconstitutional. They practiced segregation, which I don't approve of. They segregated the men and the women in their dorms. I got caught in the women's dorm, and I protested that was segregation, and that was wrong. They didn't listen to me. They asked me to leave. But I'm still glad I went because I got to meet all kinds of different people from all over the world. I went to school with the son of the defense secretary of Malaysia. I went to school with the son of the president of Toyota. And I went to school with a poor kid from India. 
Now, I did not have the talent or the experience to be able to pronounce his first name. It was a long Indian name. I couldn't get it. He's a great guy. Was here with the hopes of becoming a doctor and then going home to his home village in India. But I had seen Star Trek II, so I could pronounce his middle name, Khan. So I called him Khan. And one day, in the TV room, after study period in the evening, Khan was talking to a kid from Boston who was Jewish and a Catholic guy from Lima, Peru, Andre. And I, at that time, I was an atheist, so I didn't have a dog in this fight. I was just kind of listening. But the three of them were talking. And Andre, the Catholic, and Mike, the Jewish kid, was giving Khan all kinds of business because he was Hindu, and they were basically saying, you'll worship anything. How many gods do you have in your house? And Khan said something interesting. He looked at them, and it even made me turn around. He said, we don't worship as many gods in India as you do here in America. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They said, well, let's start here. You Americans worship your stomach. And I said, what do you mean? He said, this is the only country in the world I've ever been to, and I've been to several, that has three fast food restaurants on every block. He's got a point. An idol can be anything. Jim Elf said, what may be good and beautiful under the authority of God becomes a damning God if you love it more than Christ. It is not that loving a good thing is a bad thing. It is that we love a good thing more than we should. That's the problem. And we all do it. You can love your spouse more than you love Jesus Christ. You can love your kids more than you love Jesus Christ. You can love your business, your job, and being successful more than you love Jesus Christ. You can love influence in the community more than Jesus Christ. You can love being healthy, physically, emotionally, more than Jesus Christ. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. I'm trying to get healthy. I was a little bit too obsessed with my health at one point, sitting around counting protein every day and carbs every day, working out an hour and a half every day. I don't have time for that anymore. And then and I was always praying that I would be faithful to God, and that includes not having idols. And this is what happens when you pray and you realize God listens and sometimes he acts. I said, God, I need to kill all the idols in my life. And one of them was my body, so he tore my MCL. And I spent six weeks laying on my back, feeling sorry for myself and eating pizza. And then the pandemic came, and I ate more pizza. But Megan and I made a commitment beginning of January. I said, okay, it's time for us to get healthy again. So here I am, trying, just trying to, get, trying to keep it in perspective, counting calories but not going crazy, you know, exercising every day when I have the time. PhD takes up a lot of time, but trying to exercise every day. And I've lost five pounds, working out every day, counting calories every day. Megan's worked out once and lost six. God has a sense of humor. Anyway, anything can become an idol. It's good to be healthy. It's good to be successful. It's good to be, especially if you're a Christian, to be influential in the community. It's good to love your spouse. I am for it. It's much better than hating your spouse. It's good to love your kids. I'd throw myself in front of a bus for my son. but you have to love God more. And can we all admit that's tough? But I see it all the time. I saw it more, especially with kids in this area, because kids in sports are almost a religion in this area. When my son, I tried to raise my son to be a basketball fan, because I'm a huge basketball fan. Well, he was more interested in baseball. 
The only sport my son loves is baseball. Everything else he can do without. And he wanted to learn to play baseball. So, okay, I tried to teach him. I wasn't very good. But, of course, what you do when your son is four or five and they want to learn baseball, what do you do? Sign up for t-ball. So I signed him up for t-ball. Now I went to all the games. But it's t-ball, right? I mean, they put the ball right here. You can't miss it. And the kids can't field. You know, they're too easily distracted. But there was this one kid who was really big and strong for his age, I remember. And he came and his dad was really, really, really into it. T-ball. And his kid comes up, and he hits it, and he really knocks it. Now, in T-ball, that means it's almost in the outfield. Now, if you've ever watched a T-ball game, you know this. 90% of the time when there's a fly ball, what happens? It drops to the ground. Because the kids are like, is, is it supposed to do that? So this one comes up, and there's this kid playing second base, and he's got his glove like this, and it just goes right into his glove. And the kid even looks like, like wow, look at that. I thought it was pretty cool. The dad of the kid hitting did not think it was cool. He started throwing a fit. A fit. It's T-ball. The kid couldn't have been five, more than five years old, I don't think. He was throwing a fit, and it took every ounce of self-control for me not go over and just kind of tap the guy on the shoulder and go, dude, yeah, your kid is going to be a heck of an athlete. You're a big, strong kid for that age, but here's the deal. You may want to keep this in mind. He still probably believes Barney the dinosaur is real, so chill out. But that's a serious problem in our area. For some reason, despite the odds... People, every, it just seems like every other dad in this area thinks that their kid is going to make it to the major leagues or the NFL or the NBA. I've had parents tell me that. Oh, my son will make it to the NBA. Okay. I hope so. But I wouldn't take them odds, would you? Idols. Idols can be good things. Love your kids, love your spouse, love your job, love your community. Love your health, but don't love them more than God. Or otherwise, it's an idol. It's the way it is. And in order to truly follow Jesus, you've got to kill your idols. But in order to kill your idols, you have to identify them first. How do you do that? Uh, Dr. Tim Keller, who's a pastor who I really admire, who, by the way, is fighting pancreatic cancer right now. Dr. Keller said this, you can recognize the true God of your heart by doing this. Where do your thoughts effortlessly go when there is nothing else to demand your attention? All right, kids, grandkids, gone. Not working. For me, that's typically when I'm driving and I got a podcast on or music on, my mind just starts to drift. Where does your mind go? If it doesn't go directly to God and confession time, mine doesn't, we've got a problem. We have an idol problem. Where does your mind go? Where does your money go? Where does your free time go? That will tell you what you worship. And this is important. This is important. And it can be anything. You really have to keep your eye out for it. I'll tell you a weird, weird, sinful temptation that I struggle with. If there is a sin of book buying, I commit it on a weekly basis. 
Now, the overwhelming majority of books I buy are about the Old Testament or the New Testament. They're about Jesus. They're about the first century. They're about ancient Judaism. All that other kind of stuff. They're all about the Bible. I was watching a YouTube video the other day on a study break. It was from a professor of, of Greek New Testament. Don't I know how to party? Um, and he was talking about how many books he had in his library. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I started to wonder, how many books do I have in my library? And the overwhelming majority of my library is electronic. I, I, don't, I don't buy hard copies of books anymore if I can get the book on my Bible software. Because I can copy and paste it, I can review it, I can, I can copy and paste for sermons, lessons, all that kind of stuff. And so that's why I prefer that. And so I went to my library on my software, and, and it said if you hit that, it would, it would list all my books and the number. 3,610. And then I counted my hard copy books. I quit counting at 4,000. Now, That is not a brag, because even I want to give myself a swirly after saying that. This is a caution I have to have, because here is what I've seen. I have seen this in seminaries and Bible colleges, and I have seen this in the ministry. It can become more tempting to have knowledge about God than to worship God. You can make an idolatry out of biblical scholarship. I've seen it. It can pop up anywhere, and it's not just that it pops up once, and you pray really hard, or you fast, or whatever, and you kill it. It's like playing, in your lifetime, spiritual whack-a-mole. One pops up, and then another pops up. And you've got to pay attention. And this is so important, and ironically, I'm going to recommend a book. There's a great little book by Dr. Gregory Beale. He's a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He wrote a book a few years ago said, called We Become What We Worship. And it's true. You will become like the quality or the essence of whatever it is that you worship. So if you worship looks and fame and that kind of stuff, there's a reason why so many people with looks and fame are so shallow, because that God in and of itself is shallow. Because it's skin deep, and it's fleeting. It's not eternal. My wife, a few weeks ago, got the urge, for some reason, to rewatch the Lord of the Rings movies. Has everybody seen the Lord of the Rings movies? Yeah, okay, there you go. Carter says yes. Um, if you haven't seen them, they are worth watching. You, you have to put away like a week of your life because they take forever. They're really long. And the books they're based upon are really long. But the guy who wrote the books, J.R.R. Tolkien, was a Christian. And at one time, his office at Cambridge University was right down the hall from another Christian writer by the name of C.S. Lewis who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. That's mind-blowing to think Tolkien was writing The Lord of the Rings while C.S. Lewis was down the hall writing about Aslan at the same time. And they were friends, and they would talk about it at, at night. Now, I hadn't seen The Lord of the Rings movies since I showed them to my son many years ago. And, but I caught bits and pieces of it. Now, here's the thing about The Lord of the Rings movies. If you haven't seen them, or if you have the most interesting character there are not the little hobbits. They're kind of boring. They're tiny. They have furry feet. They're nice, but that's about it. It's not the wizard Gandalf. Because what, what does the movies tell you about Gandalf? He's a wizard. He likes hobbits. That's about it. The most interesting character in The Lord of the Rings is Gollum. Now, if you don't know who Gollum is, or if you don't remember, if you've seen the movies, this is 
all I need to say to remind you who Gollum is. My precious. That's Gollum. Now, the interesting thing about Gollum is this. When we meet Gollum, he is a cannibalistic monster. He dwells in dark caves, and he pounces upon people, and he kills them, and he eats them. But he wasn't always that way. He was, at one time, a little cute little hobbit, a hobbit who lived by the river. And then one day in the river, he found a ring. And it turns out this ring was a magical ring. Among other things, it could make you become invisible. And he fell, falls in love with this magical ring that also happens to be evil. And he loves this ring. Would kill for this ring. Would die for this ring. He worships that ring. And that ring distorts him emotionally, mentally, and physically into a monster. And that is what any false god does to us in some way, shape, or form. How many of you remember because I can't assume this. Do you remember who Steve Jobs is? Steve Jobs? Anybody? Yeah. Co-founder of Apple. Now, Steve Jobs was an interesting guy. There's, a, there's <laughs> ironically, a book uh, that I read a few years ago about his life written by a guy by the name of Walter Isaacson. Steve Jobs was a complicated, interesting fellow. Uh, he was undeniably brilliant. He was undeniably driven. He was undeniably a pain in the butt. The guy he started Apple with didn't really want to talk to him. He had a friend named Bill Gates, who until he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Bill Gates didn't want to talk to him. In fact, nobody really wanted to talk to Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs had a vision. Here's what he wanted. He wanted to make products that were simple and sleek. Simple and sleek. So that's why almost every Apple product, especially if you go back and look at the early ones, what do they look like? Smooth white boxes. Very simple. To the point that when he opened up the very first Apple computer, they brought him the very first Apple computer that was going to be mass produced. He opened up the computer and he said, this is a mess in here. I want it clean. I want the inside of this computer to look clean. They said, Steve, nobody looks inside of the computer. He said, I do. I want it clean. So they had to do it. He's the boss. Everything had to be symmetrical. Everything had to be simple. Everything had to be clean. And everything had to work together. Do you know what the I in iPhone or iPad or iMac stands for? Anyone? Integrated. It stands for integrated. Why? Because Steve Jobs' vision was you could integrate your phone and your tablet and your laptop. They would all work together, integrated. That was his idea. The problem was that he began to live his life like that. Very simple, no complications. Everything had to fit together. If it didn't fit together, he wanted nothing to do with it, and that included a daughter. He turned his back on his eldest daughter. Lost friends. And died a billionaire pretty much alone. 
Bill Gates began to worship his own product, and his own product that he worshiped began to distort his own life and twist him into something he never should have been. You see what I mean? It's the way it is. So what do you do about it? You have to worship the one true God, not just on Saturday evening or Sunday morning, but every single day. You are what you worship, so you have to worship God every single day. And that includes singing to God. Now, let me make this confession. I am a movie buff. I love movies. But I hate musicals. Hate musicals. Where in the world, in life, do people spontaneously break into song? It doesn't happen. And I think it's weird. My brother, my older brother Brian, for 25 years was the head of the music department at Walt Disney Motion Pictures. When people ask him what he did at Walt Disney, one of the things he'll say is, well, I was one of the people responsible for High School Musical. And then he pauses and says, I'm sorry. I don't care for it. And I don't like to sing. Because my voice is atrocious. I mean atrocious. Do you remember when the rapper Biz Marquee tried to sing? If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it. You've got what I need? Yeah, that guy is Pavarotti compared to me. It's awful. But how is it that God wants us to worship him? It's to sing to him. But, and while it's fine to sing secular songs, some secular songs do teach us valuable things. A busy father should listen to the cats in the cradle, and it should bring him to tears. But, when you're singing to God, you need to sing songs about God to God. Not songs about you to God, but songs about God to God. That's what he wants to hear. And by the way, that does not make him selfish or egomaniac. He's the only person in the universe who deserves it because he is perfect. He deserves it. You have to do it. I have to do it. I have to learn to do it. It's not going to be easy. And because I do this with almost every sermon, I read through books on counseling and psychology Do you know one of the easiest, quickest ways to reduce stress and anxiety? I think it was Harvard. I have to go back and look. I think it was at Harvard. They did a six-month study. It's not meditation. It's not exercise. The quickest way to reduce stress and anxiety is to sing. Did you know that? I didn't know that. And because I don't like to sing, I didn't want to hear it either. I read it two or three times thinking there's got to be a footnote here somewhere. No. I'm going to ask the musicians who are going to come. I want you to come on up because you're going to go in here in a second because we're going to practice this before we leave. But I am a fan of old Hollywood. I love stories about old Hollywood. I don't really care too much about new Hollywood. But I'm going to mention a name that probably 50% of you don't recognize. But for those 50%, how many of you know who Dick Van Dyke is? Okay. Okay. Dick Van Dyke had one of the most successful shows of the 1960s, the Dick Van Dyke Show. He has one of the worst English accents ever in Mary Poppins. 
He did TV, did movies. What I didn't know until I listened to him interviewed a few months ago was that Dick Van Dyke, who did a lot of Disney movies, usually family-friendly movies, and then in the 80s he did a lot of detective TV shows and stuff like that. Dick Van Dyke was a raging alcoholic. Now, he made it a point of pride that he was always on set on time, though hungover. He always knew his lines. He didn't start drinking till he got home, but as soon as he started drinking, he drank till he fell asleep or passed out. And he was a chain smoker. He's still alive at 95. He says he spent more than 40 years drinking a bottle of bourbon a night. Now, I have no idea how somebody lives that long. His liver at one time must have weighed as much as like a member of a boy band. But he lived to be 95. He's still alive. They asked him how he did it. He said, well, after my first wife left me for being a drunk, I found a woman decades later that I wanted to marry, and she said, I'll marry you, but on one condition. You're going to quit drinking and quit smoking. So he quit drinking. He went to rehab. He said he replaced his addiction to cigarettes with addiction to Nicorette gum. And he quit. And they said, so that's how you live to be 95? He said, no, I drank for 40 years. I smoked for more than 40 years. He said, how did you live to be 95? He said, the only thing I can figure out is this. Every morning when I get up, I sing. He said, I sing every morning. And it always makes me happy. Singing is powerful. And singing to God is even more powerful because we become what we worship. And what we're going to do now is practice and so for those of you who hang out in the donut room until it's time to preach, stand up. You get, you're not getting out of here. <laughs> it's time all of you learn to sing. Stand up. Now, what I want you to do is to sing. What I'm going to do is sing. I will turn my microphone off. We're going to sing. Now, if a bunch of you aren't singing... Keep in mind, I am a lawyer, which means I have no soul, and then I'll turn my microphone on and call you out. So, let's sing. Go for it.
take out all of the idols, all of the distractions, and just focus on God. So when we sing this bridge out, let's sing it like we mean it, and then let's live it out. Sing with me. Not so hard, was it? Now, the irony of me confessing uh, book buying sins and talking about Steve Jobs. Here's the deal. How are you going to sing every day in worship, God? Well, if you have one of these, ironically, you can go to our YouTube channel and you can go back over all the worship services are there to begin the services so you can sing along with Andrew, or Megan, or Ralph, or combinations thereof, so you have no excuse, right? God bless you. God goes with you. I warn you, the old preacher's 100%. He'll be back in the pulpit next week. Lord willing, I'll see you next time. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.